From Western Sound and ACAST Studios, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 6, The Hunter. Joe, you know, I wanted to ask you, we've been hearing a lot about your stories about bank robbery, stories about your childhood. Like, what kind of toll does telling these stories take on you? Is it is it hard for you to do? Yeah, well, that's a good question. It's not necessarily, there's, there's two questions, right? Is it hard for me to do, and does it take a toll on me? Telling stories is what I do. I'm a storyteller. Right. Even in prison, I had story, everywhere, everybody's a storyteller, and everybody has a story. I had standout stories. I'm a storyteller. I've been that since I was a kid. I would get kids around my my <laughs> mom's flannel graph board at age seven, tell stories. That's what I do. So it's the easiest thing in the world for me to tell the story. When I was young, I didn't understand, or younger when I first got out of prison, I didn't understand I was telling stories with such emotional, heavy weight that when I would tell them, I'd be like, great, I gave insight to people. I told the story, and then I would walk away, and I'd feel like shit. Because what I did is I opened up a trap door, <laughs> and all this stuff came out. Mm. And remember, these stories once are the things that drove me off the edge. Right. They would fuck me up. They would trigger me to go behave violently. When I changed my life and I organized them all on the page, they had a different feel. They they were the things that let me see all the grief in my life. So now when I tell these stories, all that happens is the grief comes. They just sit with me and they're heavy on me. So at the end of the last episode, you just told your dad's new girlfriend all about the abuse and the trauma that you and your brother Paul were suffering. And then you picked up a knife. You're at Sizzler, you picked up a steak knife, and you said the next time your dad hits you, you're going to stab him in the neck. Yeah. I mean, how did she respond to that? How did she respond to you and your brother telling her all this stuff? Yeah, she was really shocked. And you know, for when I handed the knife, the first thing was like, no, put it down. Violence doesn't solve anything, which is very sweet. Um, but I put it down. and um, But I, then I realized you can't tell my dad what happened. You can't confront him. You're not, you know, in my head, she's not strong enough. So she tells us she's going to figure it out. She's the adult, but she won't tell him. But she's such a sweetheart. She has no idea who she's working with. She's not an actress. She's not a good liar. In fact, that's the thing that's beautiful about her. She's an honest, transparent woman. And what we, the information we had just given her devastated her. Like, it's just, what? How do I process? Good people like that don't know how to hide those feelings. But she believed you. She thought you were telling the truth. Yeah, she knew we were telling the truth. And even if she didn't, she still had to process the fact that these boys are telling her some really terrible things about this guy. I had to give her pause. And that's all my dad needed. He could feel the molecules between them shift, man. There's a thing. And especially if you're an insecure man who's trying to control situations, you pick up, you're always picking up the vibe. Where am I losing hold? A week goes by. We would always go to the laundromat. We'd wash clothes. And he, it was a disco era. Like polyester pants, velour clothes, and it was just weird, weird, weird fashion time. And you know, he used to go to disco, and he used to love to dance. My dad was a cool little dancer, dude, man. Um, but we were poor, you know. He had gone bankrupt. We were struggling. 
had he lost his job like since yeah yeah he'd lost his job oh wow okay uh we go to the laundromat it's a sunday and i i, I fuck up and i dry his clothes i throw his clothes in the dryer and they're not supposed to be in the dryer they're not supposed to be at that temperature or i somehow i ruined a big chunk of his wardrobe and um you know accidentally but he was he was very angry obviously he was angry you know he was frustrated i'd be frustrated too even as you know nice guy now you ruin half my shitty wardrobe. I'm gonna be pissed. Well, especially your nice disco clothes and <laughs> my disco costume. So, but we come home and he's mad. You know, you know, gives me the slap in the face. Go to the room. We can feel he's angry, and he starts washing dishes. And um, then he calls me to the kitchen. Very strange. It's all this tension, and he says, "Hey, by the way, I talked to Susie, and she told me what you said." And instantly, I'm like, fuck, she couldn't keep her mouth shut. We are in trouble. And then he does this thing where he's like, but it's fine. I get it. You needed to do it. He just goes total Joe Magnanimous on us, right? And there's a thing when you're a kid, you want your parents to be righteous, man. So he says that he's fine with it. And all he needs is for me to be honest and admit that I talked to her about what happened. And I always tell people, I laugh, because I confess to them, like, yeah, 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 I did. And it's the first and last time I ever confessed to a crime. <laughs> and the reason is because he immediately gets mad, and he was fishing. He didn't know shit. He was playing me. So he got what he wanted. And then he grabs a teapot, and I was like, oh, shit, I got to run. He throws a teapot at me hits me, bangs up against my, my arm or something. I would go running in the bedroom, and then it's on like Donkey Kong, man. He starts beating the shit out of me. And he beats me with everything. I mean, it's like teapot was in there and a hamper, you know. Later on, the police reports would say, you know, fractured bones and uh, concussion. Jesus. Yeah, uh, rib and, 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 and elbow. So, yeah, and I mean, I'm getting a good beating. I'm a vicious beating, man, one of the worst. And um, then he leaves the house and goes to break up with Susie by phone. And when he goes to break up with Susie by phone, he has to go to a 7-Eleven because we don't have a phone. We're poor. And so uh, he leaves. And I tell Paul very quickly, get in the bathroom because it clicks in my head. This is the time I need to stab him. I said I would. And now I'm going to do it. So you were thinking back to, like, did you actually think about, like, yeah. your time in the restaurant? Like, I said I was going to do it. Absolutely. Now I need to do Absolutely. It. I'm now feeling like I'm swimming in morbidity, man. I fucking got fear. I got confusion. I got a concussion. I'm getting beat. It's like a fucking fugue state. It's all in here. Oh, you did do the knife thing. Oh, he humiliated you. Oh, you don't like feeling that. Now's the time to do it. Okay, what? Where's the knives? I don't know. Paul, he's in the bathroom. I protected him. Like, it's us all fucking swimming in that shit, right? And I had already declared it so that I have something I can, even though it feels like it's a miasma, there is something I declared and I put down in the ground I can grab for and say, I said I would stab him next time. And that's what I latch onto. In all of that shit, it's like, okay, that's the thing. It will get me out of this moment. This is what you do. You declared it. Let's rock it. And so I go get the, the knife and um, put it under the pillow. He comes back. And he stands in the door. He's looking at me. 
and he's ready for round two. And ready for round two means I could see he's on the balls of his feet. His neck is loose. His oh, his just fucking body's electric. You know, his shoulders are loose. He's he's ready to put in work. He looks at me, and then he looks over in the corner, and he sees a weight set, shit, old shitty weight set. It was the kind that had the weights were were, were cement, but wrapped in plastic. And uh, it's this long bar, and he starts. He walks over there, locked eyes on me, menacing me like, "Ha I got something for your ass." And he goes over there, and he starts to disassemble the weight. Now the the thing, the assembly that locks it in, it's a big piece of metal. It looks like a big piece of steel. And then there's the bar, and then there's the weights. If he hits me with any of that shit, I'm fucking through with money. That, that I'm gonna be injured no matter what. I mean, hitting you with any of those things could kill you. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm like, what the fuck? This is a whole new level of improvised savagery for this dude. He's mad. So, <sighs> this is what I hate about telling this fucking story. You see, I know this because this is what I do when I go in the bank. Same fucking thing. He's menacing me. He wants to fucking... He's, he's, he's lapping up my fear. And it's just empowering him to do some crazy shit, right? So, I'm, I'm sitting in the bed. And then I reach underneath my pillow. Pull out the knife. I stand up. And I look at him and he's like, oh shit. And then he like puts the weight down. <laughs> and you know, I'm holding the steak knife. But I'm only holding it. And then he, like, starts walking to me slowly, saying, put it down, put it down, or give me the knife, give me the knife. I'm like, fuck that, I'm not giving this dude the knife. I know I have only this move right here. I run at him, charge at him, put, my, put the arm up, go to attack him. I come up and come down, and he puts his arm up, and he blocks me. I'm like, oh, shit. He doesn't block me by grabbing my arm. He just blocks me with his arm, so my arm can kind of slide up and over. And he's like, oh, shit. And I get it over, and he turns his head, and I stab him in the back. And it goes into his muscle right next to his spinal cord in his neck. And I stab it in, and I'm in there, and then I start twisting to try and break it off. And he's like, ah, you killed me, you killed me. I mean, I'm putting in work, and he knows I'm putting in work. And I believe I'm trying to kill him, and he's going to die. And I'm fucking a, a beast in this moment. He falls. I stand over him. And I say something like fucking dramatic. I don't say this is what your evil hath wrought kind of shit. But I say like you, that's what you got coming. Or you did this to yourself. Or you killed yourself. Something like that. And then I'm out and I go to the bathroom. My brother's already out of the front door. He's like, Joey, what'd you do? Let's go. Run! And I, he runs out without ahead of me, and I'm running down the middle of the road and on Fremont. And then I'm like, okay, he's gonna pull that dude's a monster too. And I start worrying, like, oh shit, he wasn't dead when I left. So maybe he pulled it out. No, what if he's coming with that knife? Oh shit! Like I started feeling that. Like, what if he lives and pulls it out? We're we're dead. If I I didn't actually make sure he was dead. So, 
Nice, and let's go this street. <laughs> so we're still going towards my Aunt Gloria's house, but we're going up another road, and we take the long way instead of the straight Fremont to her house because I didn't want to get in the car and come in and get in. A, we finally make it sneak across the highway and get over there to my Aunt Gloria's, and I'm like, my dad, I killed my dad, I killed my dad. She calls the cops. She was my dad's closest sister, but she calls the cops. We'll be right back. So, Joe, what happened next? Cops come, they take us. And I'm calm. At the police station. I'm sitting there like... You know, there's a movie where uh, Kevin Spacey is Kaiser Soze. Usual suspects. Usual suspects. I'm like one of those cool-ass usual suspects where I'm just sitting there. I, mean, I got almost picture my knees, my legs crossed. And I'm sitting there smoking a cigarette all casual and cool because I'm not smoking a cigarette. My knees and legs aren't crossed. But I am so pumped from what happened and feeling the power of that. When you kill somebody, and for a moment, I thought my dad was dead. I killed him. That was a different power. When you do that, and you talk to people in your way, prison, talk to people who kill people. And I had friends who would say, you know, the the only the only thing stopping that man from being dead right now? And I would say, no one. They would say, my decision. And to be a man who that's true to, like, you know, the only thing that I'm standing, like, sitting here looking at you and say, you have no clue, but the reason you're alive is because right now I choose to not kill you. That's a powerful way to move in the world. For a moment, I could feel that. Oh, man, I'm the kind of guy who now can just say, you, you're done. You, I let you live longer. You, you're done. You know, that kind of thing. And then they they take me to interrogate me. The police officer wants to hear my story, and as I start telling him my story, thinking that I'm telling him how I was abused and he tried to hurt us and I did it out of self-defense. And then he starts asking me questions. And very quickly, I start realizing from the kinds of questions he's asking me, like, why didn't you run away? Why didn't you call anyone? So you got the knife and you waited in bed? You waited on your bed with it under the pillow, hiding. And I realized he's painting a picture of me of laying in wait because the portrait he's painting in his head is, you know, he's like, you didn't have to stab him. You could have called us. And like he's painting this as attempted murder. And I realized that sitting there, I'm smart enough to kind of get the impression that you probably beat the fuck out of your kid and you don't want, you don't like me. You don't like what I represent because we ain't taking shit from people like you. And you're backing my dad's play. I just told you what he did. And he, he's not looking at me like I'm an abused kid who tried to defend himself from his father who came back for round two. But for one, when I'm sitting there telling the story about how I killed my dad, I felt like fucking King Kong. I was like, 
or maybe David's the better analogy. I fucking took out Goliath, right? Like I, I'm a badass. Like I can start looking at this cop like you're a fucking piece of shit for backing my dad's play. I'm starting to like recognize this. Maybe even starting to this at the beginning of like, oh, you're authority figure. Fuck you. Oh, your authority figure could give, give each other cover to do shit like this to us. Fuck you. I do remember resenting the fuck out of that guy very fast. So you're sitting in the police station and you you thought that you killed your dad. Like, yeah. What what are you feeling towards him in this moment? Some t- point in that in the precinct, I learned that he was alive. Because when they went there, he wasn't there. He's not dead on the floor in there. So we do learn that. I do learn that eventually and the adrenaline all goes away and all of a sudden my fucking arms and ribs it hurts to breathe because if you've ever had fractured ribs you know the tissue around it gets swollen and then your lungs are pushing up again so it's hard to breathe I start having problems and I explain that I'm having problems so they take me to the doctor in the hospital when they get to the hospital that's when they find out all the things about me major concussions and fractures and bruises and all like I'm a mess I've been abused and it's no longer attempt to murder. Clearly, it's self-defense. So we go to McLaren Hall. When we go to McLaren Hall... So McLaren Hall, that's the place where Brenda had worked, which was the place where they took kids who were being abused. It's a big facility, and then before you, they can find a foster home for you. Uh, we go to McLaren Hall, and I'm the least injured kid there, practically. I mean, there's little kids that are very little in crutches and patches over their eyes and burn marks on their bodies. Like, the parents have fucking abused these kids. They're all taken out of their home because they're all badly treated to varying degrees. Neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Everybody has a scared bunny in there. The difference between me and them is that I tried to kill my abuser, and none of them did. And so I'm already in a league of my own. And... um when we go to the yard the next morning, I start telling my story, and they just flock around me <laughs> because they know I'm a protector. Hmm. I will protect them. And I act like that. Like, don't worry, man. You won't be bullied here. Don't worry. And they know my brother's telling the story. He put me in the bathroom. He protected me. and tried to kill my dad, who'd been beating us. And so I'm that guy. But they also know something because they're victims. They also know that I am now going to be the guy on the prowl for victims. You know? I'm now going to go make victims. There's That thing has shifted. And in that moment, there's solidarity between us. But unlike them, I'm made of a different quality. And it, was, it showed pretty quickly. All those kids, everyone wanted to go back home right away. They were given a freedom, liberated from those fucked up homes. And at night, starting from the youngest up, they'd start crying. They want to go home to mom. It was freakish. It was cavernous, so like you could hear things all over the place. You'd hear the, the guards walking their keys jingling, and you would hear them go comforting and sniffling, crying. I want to go home. I want my mom. I want my dad. I didn't understand them. I was like, "What the fuck is wrong with them? We just got freed. Why do they want to go back?" Years later, I'd understand this: freedom and emancipation, fucking anxiety-ridden, because you don't know what's going to happen. And people will lurch back to a bondage that's familiar rather than move forward in an emancipation that houses nothing but fucking 
question marks and anxiety and like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Huh? If I leave this relationship, where am I going to live? How am I going to make money? How am I going to raise the kids? I'm like, ah, no, I just stay here and get better life. That's easier. I'm like, that's the easy call. That's what was going on with these kids. And I didn't get it. I didn't, didn't get it all. So as you're lying there on the cot in McLaren Hall, all these kids are surrounding you. Some of them are sniffling, you know, longing for home. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, man, I'm never going home. I don't need to go home. The world's mine now. I need to go in that direction. I'm bold now. I'm made of a different material than them. Whatever's coming, yeah, it's kind of scary, but guess what? I did this other thing that was scarier. Nothing's going to be scarier than trying to, to marshal your will to get to a point where you're saying, okay, time for that man to die. That was the, 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 the it took me years to get to that. To be afraid to go, what, foster home? I'm going to go around on Pasadena? I, I, who knows? I don't care. It's not scary to me. It was scary to them. And that's when I realized I'm, a different, I'm made of a different material than them right now because of what I did. We'll be right back. The change was big and immediate for Joe and his dad, Joe Sr. Let's hear from Joe Sr. now with his side of the story. Do you have, you know, I wanted to ask, do you have a scar? Yes. Can I see it? Like, right there. Yeah, I can see it. Your hair, you sort of, your hair doesn't grow back where it is. Yeah. My barber, for years, would ask me, where'd you get that? I said, uh, I was jumped by 15 kung fu guys. And I came out of fight with only this, but you should see them. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't in the mood to discuss it. Right. Let me back up to give you the background a little bit. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm going out with this girl at the time, and I really treated that relationship totally different. And Joe had at that time the habit of. Every, anywhere and everywhere he went, he uh, he told him how badly he was being mistreated. He told it to people at church. He told it to friends. He told it to family, you know. And uh, this particular time, she wanted to spend some time with the boys. She liked them a lot, and they liked her. So they went out together and spent the day together. I think she took them out to eat and a movie or stuff. And they spent time, and, they, and of course, it was time for Joe to get to say something about me. And I had this great reputation with her, right? And what happens? He goes and tells her, oh, my dad has been a brutal man and blah, 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 blah. Just like sticking up to your relationship. And the night she dropped him off and the next day she came over and she was really told, I never seen her like this, totally different person. Very, very, very standoffish. A very matter of fact she wasn't, there was no affection whatsoever. 
And these were all things that she did. And I started putting the pieces together. So what happened is that I, I told him, I know you talked to so-and-so. He's like stunned, right? And that set me off. And I, I did hit him again in the upper torso. And I said, just get out of here, get out of here. So I made myself go for a long walk. I took about a mile walk. When I came back, there's Joe with a knife. And I, I made the worst mistake possible. I told him, Joe, it's all right. Don't, don't use that knife, please. Give it to me. Give it to me. I'm not angry anymore. Give it to me. And I kept walking, you know, forward. My fault. And I kept walking forward, and I said, I'm not going to hurt you. This is it. This is the end of it. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not angry anymore. I had a, uh, an hour to walk and think about things. And after it, ooh, I went towards the bed, and he, he was walking backwards, and I was walking forward. And he fell back on the bed, and I jumped on him and said, give me the knife. It's all right. It's all right. And he moved up. He moved his body, and we were close to the edge of the bed, and I f- rolled over. And then I felt something warm in my neck. I felt something warm in my neck. And then I felt, I knew he stabbed me. And then the next thing he does is he turns the knife. I was shocked. And I said, that asshole. You know, I said to my to myself, what an asshole, he turned the knife. And then it hit me. And then it hit me. He didn't stab you. You made him stab you. Think of all that. I went, my memory went right back to when he was a little baby on that high chair. Just loving to see his daddy. The one that told me that he loved me as long as counting goes. He was a little child I was so proud of. What happened? You treated him that way. We're here because of you, Joe. It was my moment of clarity. So what if they didn't obey you always? So what if they were the kids they were? They were still loving kids. So what about all this crap that you made important that wasn't that important? They were important. of his mother. How I let her down. And I swore then I will change. It's a long, been a long journey. You can't go through all of that stuff. I don't consider that Joe stabbed me. I consider that I put that knife in his hand and told him to do it. How could he trust me? How could he believe I'm not, I didn't intend to do anything but just take the knife and put it down and talk with him and let him know it will never happen again. No, I'm, I'm the culprit here, not him. And I take full responsibility for that.
things changed after that. Joe became more difficult. And I knew that. I could see his attitude. He was empowered. But you know what? He had every right to go through that. Again, had I treated him differently, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be experiencing what he had to experience. They have a saying, payback is a you-know-what. And I was getting mine. And I had to shut up and take it because I created this. I had to reach out and I had to be the one that let him know that I loved him and show it, not just say it. Let them know. Yeah, I would would make further mistakes, but none of them would include what had happened that day or days before that. That chapter, so to speak, ended then and there. It was a horrible five, six years. After the stabbing, the boys stayed away from their dad. Abuse like that casts a long and dark shadow. Paul spent time over there with my sister a lot. He'd stay for nights in her garage because he had two jobs and he'd come home late and he was work. He had two jobs and he was in school. Right. In high school. Uh, that's been that's Paul all the way. Mm-hmm. Hard worker. Um, Joe, on the other hand, went to live with friends. With friends. He that's went right. with another family. That's right. Okay. And um, it was it was a a time when I I missed them. I knew I'd I had to go through this. Mm-hmm. I had to prove to them that I cared for them, I loved them, that I knew that I had done a lot of wrong. But believe it or not, neither Joe nor Paul cut off ties with Joe Sr. Joe came out to visit me a couple of times. Um, Paul was the first one to come home. But then Joe decided he was going to come home as well. And I was happy to have them both. And it was a different dynamic in the house altogether. I had basically learned to just uh, take a hands-off approach. Let them experience whatever it's supposed. they're supposed to experience. Don't get on their cases about things. Uh, have more levity in the house. Uh, don't be threatening in any way, form, or shape. We, it was an interesting time. Joe tells me that he was cocky and he could sense that I, w- I had changed and I was really trying, but he was going to punish me. He wasn't going to you know, put some mental pain on me, Mm -hmm. which he did. But again, I deserved it. I, that was my, that's what I had to go through. As soon as he can, Paul joins the military just to get out of there. Joe sticks around East LA and starts falling into crime. I never blame my dad for what I did at all. None of my crimes. I say, dad, when you punch me in the mouth, you did alter my imagination about how effective violence could be. <laughs> you did do that, but I don't blame him for whatever I did. I just never do. Feels feels weak. You know, something happened that day. I started becoming terrible. This this thing that was awakened in me, and we'll leave it at this, it was brilliant in, in a way in that 
I changed my story so dramatically, the arc of my story changed, the propulsion of my story changed, and the direction changed from this point of brokenness and pain and even fuzziness because of the concussion, what I was able to draw up to make happen, and I tried to kill that man that day. I failed at killing him, thank God, but that's what I was trying. I was trying to turn myself into a murderer that day. So my work wasn't done. Like the, the renovations, the violent renovations that I wanted to do with my story, it's just beginning. I read somewhere, I think it was Renzo Piano said that all renovation is violence. He was talking about like destroying walls to renovate spaces, right? And I love that phrase because I felt like that's right. All the interior renovations I did to myself had to be underwritten by violence to myself and other people. This was the thing that put me on the path, trying to murder my father and saying, okay, so I'm not gonna be a murderer today. But what are my options? This is episode six of the Bank Robber Diaries, The Hunter. Season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leon. Production assistance from Annette Ronhell. Mixing is by Johnny Vincevens. Next up, episode seven, Big Bank, Little Bank. Stay tuned.